Welcome to episode 45 of History Does You. Today we'll be talking about the German campaign of 1813 featuring Dr. Michael Legere, which I'm super excited about. This is the only the second episode we've actually done about the Napoleonic Wars, which is super surprising to me. But if you want a super comprehensive account of the Napoleonic Wars, we did an episode way back in season one, I think episode 12, I want to say, that really started with the French Revolution and went all the way to the Congress of Vienna. But this is a kind of a closer examination of the German campaign of 1813, which for me is one of the more interesting parts of the military history of the Napoleonic Wars, just in terms of Napoleon being able to raise an army after having most of it destroyed in Russia and fight a more or less a pretty impressive campaign against pretty much all of Europe. So it was, again, it's a super interesting episode. If you're looking at the Napoleonic Wars, there's all these sort of socioeconomic things that are changing. You have political revolution, obviously the French Revolution. So there's a lot to explore in this era by kind of looking at the German campaign of 1813, which culminated in the Battle of Leipzig, which was actually the largest land battle in world history until the First World War. You know, it's kind of the beginning of what Dr. Legere will describe as sort of total war conscription, having these battles fought on different fronts between different armies from different nations. So it's this really kind of complicated and complex um, campaign. So I definitely recommend, you know, looking at a map just to give you an idea because we're referencing a lot of different places in Germany, a lot of different rivers. It's really an episode focused on the military part of it, which is still super interesting because this is war is really, really changing at this time. And many, many people and a lot of military thinkers, such as Karl von Clausewitz, kind of emerged out of this era and are still kind of a core part of military history and military learning almost to this day. It's a super interesting kind of case study about tactical brilliance from Napoleon and the allies of Austria, Prussia, Russia, and Great Britain and Sweden trying to overcome that. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. It's, I think, still super interesting, even if military history isn't necessarily your up your alley. I think it still might give you some perspective. So I hope you enjoy it. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Michael Legiri. He is a professor of history and deputy director of Military History Center at the University of North Texas. He's also a leading historian of the Napoleonic Wars, having written several books on the subject, including the 1,400-page, two-volume series, Napoleon and the Struggle for Germany, as well as Blucher, Scourge of Napoleon, which was which a winner of the Society for Military History's 2015 Distinguished Book Award. So welcome on. Well, thank you, Riley. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and to start off, what is your favorite subject of history, the research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in the Napoleonic Wars? Well, obviously, I had to say Napoleon. But my favorite period of history is actually the Bismarck period of Prussian history. But I got sucked down into the Napoleonic period as a, an innocent undergrad. I was in the honors program, and I didn't really understand how professors have their own areas of expertise. So I had just taken a class on the French Revolution with this really great professor. And I went to him and said, hey, I've got to write a thesis to be able to graduate with honors. Would you be willing to direct it? And he said, OK, well, what do you want to do it on? And I said, well, I'm looking at Prussia during the Bismarckian period. He said, oh, if you want to talk about Prussia, you got to look at it during the Napoleonic period. That's where Prussia got its start. So I got sucked down into the Napoleonic period. But basically, my favorite history is Prussian history. and my favorite history to research is Napoleonic history. So the two come together nicely. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered in your field, whether it's sources or researching? Yeah, the biggest challenge is the fact that the German general staff archives were destroyed in the Second World War. And then all the Prussian military archives were in the German general staff archive. So they're gone. I personally don't believe that they were destroyed. I believe they were carried off by the Russians and are probably sitting in some former KGB warehouse marked tops in boxes marked top secret. But that's just the theory. But regardless of whether they were destroyed by bombing missions over Potsdam or the Soviets took them, they're gone. And if you ever look at uh, works based on the German General Staff archives, they're the best. The French copy them. The Russians copy them. If you look at the original German general staff histories for 1813, 1815, 
There's nine volumes written by officers of the German general staff right at the turn of the century. And what the French and Russians do is they go in and they lift blocks, paragraphs right out of the German general staff study and put it in their own staff study because it's, it's the best. A lot of people are, get confused about German history, not in the sense of what happened, but interpretations of it. After German unification in 1871, there was a lot of nationalistic writing and so forth. But when it came to military education, professional military education, the German general staff wrote history as a learning tool. So they didn't try and hide when a general made a mistake, if Blucher made a mistake, they pointed out because they wanted their officers to learn. So by far, not having access to the documents that they had is, is the biggest challenge. But fortunately, we have the product of what they looked at, but still not the, not the complete picture. And to kind of get into the German campaign of 1813, which you've written extensively about and what we'll be talking about, to start, can you just briefly describe what had happened in the previous year during the Napoleonic Wars before the start of the 1813 campaign? Right. To understand what happened in 1812, you got to look at the bigger picture of what Napoleon's strategy was. Napoleon's strategy was to defeat the British. And the British controlled the seas and Napoleon controlled the continent. He had an army, they had a navy. So there was really no way he could fight his enemy. So he developed an economic uh, plan, an economic warfare called the Continental System, in which he closed the continent to all British goods. British could not conduct any trade on the European continent. This required the French, obviously, to control every port in Europe, and just as important, required every ally and satellite of France to comply. When Napoleon defeated the Russians and the Prussians in 1807 during the War of the Fourth Coalition, he imposed the peace treaty of Tilsit on the Prussians, and he agreed to a peace treaty with the Tilsit with the Russians, in which the Russians became his ally. The point being is that after 1807, Prussia joined the continental system, and Russia joined the continental system. Prussia was forced. Russia volunteered. Russia and Napoleon, Tsar Alexander I and Napoleon became allies. And Tsar Alexander declared that he would help Napoleon fight his war against the British. So that meant closing all ports in Russia. Now, as a stipulation of the Treaty of Tilsit of 1807 that ended the War of the Fourth Coalition, the Russians had to keep their ports closed. Should they open their ports and resume international trade and commerce with the British, that would restore a state of war between France and Russia. Well, after one year of the Franco-Russian alliance, Tsar Alexander had a change of heart, and he decided to start working against Napoleon. And by 1811, he had decided to open Russian ports to British trade because Russian trade was devastated by the continental system, as was much of continental Europe. And so Napoleon warned him, if you resume international trade and commerce with the British, this will lead to a state of war. And Alexander said, so be it. So 1811, the Tsar pulls out of the continental system, resumes relations, trade relations, diplomatic relations with the British, and Napoleon invades Russia in 1812. A lot of people think that Napoleon just wanted to invade Russia just to conquer it, but that's not the case. The case was to enforce the Treaty of Tilsit and to teach a wayward ally a lesson. Napoleon could not, even though Russia was far from being a satellite of France, he could not have this blow to his reputation of the Russians simply pulling out of the continental system. So he marched into Russia in 1812 at the head of a multinational army of around 600,000 men. His goal was to defeat the Russians as quickly as possible through maneuvers that the Germans would later replicate in the, in the Second World War, wide-sweeping, enveloping movements and then forced the Tsar basically to re-enter the continental system and probably just return to the status quo, maybe give some territory to the Poles. But all he wanted to do was get the Russians back into his war against the British. As it turned out, the Russians, because they couldn't cooperate with each other, simply withdrew deeper and deeper into Russia. And you know, inadvertently, they sucked Napoleon deeper and deeper and deeper because every time he thought that he closed the trap on them, they would escape. And they wound up going all the way to within 100 miles of Moscow before they finally turned around and fought a battle at Bordino, in which they lost, 
But it wasn't a decisive victory for Napoleon because the Russian army was able to retreat through Moscow and further east. Napoleon was then faced with the difficult decision of staying in Moscow for the winter or going back to France. There was a conspiracy in Paris against him, which made it a political necessity for him to return to Paris. But if you just look on a map, you can see Paris to Moscow in an age where information only traveled as fast as the horse. That's very hard to run an empire that way. So he made his mind up to leave and lead his army out. And of course, he waited too long in Moscow before he made that decision and the Russian winter caught him. Now, the Russian army suffered quite extensively during the war, just as Napoleon's army did. But they did. the Russians did manage to follow him during his retreat and inflict uh, casualties, further casualties, further attrition on the French army. So that if you break down the numbers, about 600,000 troops invaded Russia. It was a multinational army, about 100,000 Germans, 100,000 Poles, 100,000 Italians, 250,000 French. Of that 600,000, only 100,000 made it out. Now, of that 100,000, probably about 60,000 belonged to the Prussians and the Austrians, who Napoleon forced to participate in this war. Another way to look at it is Napoleon's main army consisted of about 450,000 men out of that 600,000. Of that 450,000, that were directly under Napoleon's command, only 10,000 made it back. So you're talking about a human catastrophe on a scale never seen before. Now, Napoleon did have some time because the Russian army was in a battered condition as well. And the thing that uh, a lot of people forget is that Napoleon invaded Russia. The Russians didn't invade Napoleon's empire. So even though Napoleon lost in Russia, his empire was still intact. The apparatus to raise men and material and money to continue waging wars was still there. That's going to be the great turning point in the German campaign is when he loses Germany and he loses the ability to run this imperial apparatus that provides him with manpower and money and material for war. And heading into the 1813 campaign, how was Napoleon able to rapidly rebuild his armies? And of that, were many of those soldiers experienced? Pure strength of will. Napoleon was a tremendous administrator, could work 21 hours a day, nonstop, uh, multitasking. But more importantly is what I said a moment ago, that the core of the empire was still completely intact. The apparatus that he created to raise recruits and so forth. All he had to do was issue orders for recruits to be raised. In fact, before he even left Russia, he had already sent orders back to Paris to draft the 1813 class. So the wheels were already in motion before he even left Russia. Now, quality is a very different story than quantity. A quality of the army was not very good at all. It was inexperienced. The men were trained while marching to the front. In particular, the loss of NCOs and junior officers in the Russian campaign really hurt his ability to what's called command and control. One of the big problems was that his senior officers were now aged to the point where they were no longer effective. They were tired. They had many wounds. They just wanted to kind of retire and enjoy what they had earned. But Napoleon pressed them into service. But a lot of the, the guys that come between the marshals and generals at the top and the privates on the bottom, a lot of those guys had been lost in Russia. So it was very difficult to train on, on the very basic level, the, the platoon, squad, company level, because of the shortage of officers, of trained officers. And heading into the spring campaign, what was the strategy for Napoleon and then vice versa? What was kind of strategy? For well, Napoleon the had a great strategy that unfortunately he never was able to implement what he had planned to do was he had planned to advance from the Main River Valley through the heart of Germany, take Berlin, in which he hoped would knock the Prussians out of the war, and then swoop behind the Russians as they came into Central Europe. He would swoop in behind them and cut them off from Russia and force them to fight a, a battle of annihilation somewhere in uh, Grand Duchy of Poland that he created or in East Prussia. Now, he was never able to implement that for various reasons. My, the first book I wrote on Napoleon in Berlin is all about that. And it's called by historians, Napoleon's Master Plan. And unfortunately for him, he was never able to implement the master plan. And that proved to be very fortunate for the Allies. 
As far as the Allies were concerned, the Allies by March of 1813 consisted of Russia, Prussia, uh, Great Britain, and Sweden in uh, what's known as the War of the Sixth Coalition. Now, their emphasis, and there was not 100% agreement in the Allied camp over this, but their emphasis was speed. They felt that they had Napoleon in a great predicament, that there was wavering support for him in Germany, and that the sooner they could get their armies into the heart of Germany, the sooner they might be able to break French control of Germany. And of course, that would swing a tremendous amount of manpower and resources in their favor. So they marched head on as quickly as they could to try and get into central Germany. And they knew Napoleon was in the area, but they weren't quite sure how close he was. And then on the 2nd of May, the two armies actually stumbled into each other at a place called Lutzen. The Germans call it uh, the Battle of Grossgorschen. The French call it the Battle of Lutzen. But the 2nd of May was the first battle of the spring campaign. And when you think about it, just five months earlier, the French Grand Armée was retreating out of Russia with a handful of survivors. And here it is, the Grand Armée of 1813 fighting a battle against Prussians and Russians. Leipzig, Lutzen is near Leipzig in the German state of Saxony. So here we are, in, not quite in central Germany, but in what would have been considered East Germany, but still how things had changed in just six months was unbelievable. And were those battles at Lutzen and others that had kind of occurred in the area, were those kind of decisive battles that Napoleon... No, that's just the point. They were French victories, but they weren't decisive victories. There were two main battles of the spring campaign, the Battle of Lutzen on the 2nd of May and the Battle of Bautzen on the 20th and 21st of May. And what happened was Napoleon's new army basically took on a new army of Russians and Prussians because the Russians had suffered so much during the 1812 campaign that most of their soldiers were dead or too sick to continue the fight. So the Russian army is relatively new, the Prussian army is relatively new, and the French army is relatively new. What we see with the battles of Lutzen and Bautzen is that parity between the soldiers on the tactical level had been achieved. And what remained Napoleon's advantage was his superior operational abilities. The operational level of warfare is your ability to move your pieces like on the chessboard and put your enemy at a disadvantageous position, disadvantage. So in both battles, Napoleon came within a few hours of actually capturing the the Tsar of Russia and the King of Prussia through superior maneuvering on the operational level of war. So technically, he won both battles because he forced the Allied armies to retreat after Lutzen and after Bautzen. But on the tactical level, he actually suffered more casualties than they did, significantly more casualties, at least two to one in both battles, about 20,000 men to 10,000 men in terms of casualties. So what the spring campaign tells us is that Napoleon was still... None of the Allied generals who faced him were a match for him. He was just head and shoulders above every Allied general that he faced, but that his army had become, you know, had suffered so much from attrition that it was not much better than what he was facing, the troops he was facing. So just to put this in perspective, within 20 days, Napoleon had forced the Allies to retreat 200 miles out of eastern Germany and to the border of Poland. So to drive a, your enemy 200 miles back is quite significant after losing half a million men the year before. And what later motivated Napoleon to end up pursuing this temporary truce? Did this end up hurting him or helping him? Well, one of the things that, that motivated him is tied into your question about well, were these battles decisive? The reason why the battles weren't decisive is because Napoleon, he had prepared his infantry well enough for battle but he didn't have enough cavalry. He had lost tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of horses in Russia. And you simply cannot replace and train that many horses in six months. So his cavalry arm was very weak. So normally in a Napoleonic battle, even if the enemy army was able to march away from the battlefield after the battle, Napoleon would unleash his cavalry and the cavalry would deliver the fatal blow. And that's what happened to the Prussians in 1806 during the War of the Fourth Coalition. Both Prussian armies actually retreated from the battlefield. There were two battles fought on the same day, 14 October 1806. 
but it was Napoleon's cavalry that he unleashed, commanded by his brother-in-law, Marshal Murat. That's what sent the Prussian army into a rout. And that's the typical of a Napoleonic battle sequence. Well, in 1813, he forced the Allies to retreat from Lutzen. He forced them to retreat from Bautzen, but he didn't have a large cavalry reserve. Large cavalry reserve, we're talking about 25,000 horses, 25,000 cavalry troopers accompanying uh, horse artillery. He didn't have that. So the Allies were able to escape basically unhindered, unharassed, and live to fight another day. So going into June of 1813, Napoleon had won two major victories, Lutzen and Bautzen, driven the Allies 200 miles eastward, but it didn't appear they were ready to make peace. It didn't appear that they were going to make peace. So he decided on the armistice because, number one, he needed more time to build, rebuild his cavalry. He knew, based on Lutzen and Bautzen, that they still couldn't match him in terms of operations that the next battle he would have, he would have probably have the opportunity to destroy them, but he needed cavalry. So he agreed to the armistice so that he could finish rebuilding his cavalry. And also the army that he started the campaign with, the army that fought at Lutz and the army that fought at Bautzen, uh, consisted of a lot of young soldiers. And a lot of them were not used to the rigors of hard campaigning, the demands that Napoleon made of his men to march 30 miles a day on very limited food. So he had a lot of men in the hospital and on the sick list. Estimates are as high as 90,000. 90,000 of his soldiers were sick or wounded in the hospitals. So he needed to give his army time to rest. He also experienced a tremendous amount of supply problems. Um, There's simply nothing to eat. The French, you know, the Grand Armée had passed, had taken everything the year before in 1812 for the Russian campaign. Then the Allied armies in March of 1813, moved westward and took everything that there was to eat. Now the Allied armies moved eastward in late May, June of 1813, took everything there was to eat. So there was simply no food left. I mean, central Germany is very rich in farmlands, but farmlands can only yield so much. So there's a great uh, quote that I found that I use in my books and says Napoleon, it's by Napoleon, it says, the army is simply not being fed. To look at it otherwise is, is foolish very simple. There was simply no food to feed the men. So those are the reasons why he agreed to the armistice. There was also an outside chance that he could get his father-in-law, the emperor of Austria, to join his him in fighting the allies. After the 1812 invasion of Russia, in which he forced the Prussians and the Austrians to participate, Prussia declared neutrality in late 1812, and then Austria declared neutrality in early January of 1813. Prussians went ahead and joined the Russians in the Sixth Coalition, primarily because Russia was occupied by the French. So they were fighting for their independence, for their liberation. Now, the Austrians, they were not occupied by French forces. In fact, Napoleon was married to the daughter of the Emperor of Austria. The Emperor of Austria was Francis I. His daughter was Marie Louise. So Francis I, his Son-in-law was Napoleon, and Napoleon's son was his grandson. So Napoleon, being ethnic Italian, placed a lot of value on family. So he actually thought that there was a good chance that his father-in-law would side with him in this war, and that he could use these, an armistice to convince Francis to join him in fighting the Sixth Coalition. So those are the reasons why he accepted the proposal for an armistice. Now. Was it good for him? Yeah, it was good for him. He recovered his cavalry. He ended up fielding over 700,000 men for the fall campaign. There's no way he could have known this, but my research has shown that if he had forced the Allies into a third battle somewhere along the the Prussian-Polish border between Silesia and the Grand Duchy of Warsaw that Napoleon had created, the Allied army probably would have disintegrated. There was so much disunity between the Russians and the Prussians at that time that a third battle probably would have won him the war. But there was no way he could have known that. So was it good for him? Yes. For the objectives he sent out, set out for himself, it was good for him because he was able to field three times as many men once the war resumed in August. Now, Austria ended up not joining him and entering on the side of the six, entering the war on the side of the Sixth Coalition. But he, deep down, he knew that was going to be the case. He was just hoping maybe to change Francis's mind, but he pretty much counted on having to fight the Austrians. 
And heading into the fall campaign, once this truce kind of expired, had Napoleon to the coalition strategy changed either as a result of Austria intervening on the side of the Allies or Napoleon having time to retrain, I guess, cavalry, as you mentioned? Well, you got to remember there's, there's, you know, three levels of war, tactical, operational, and strategic. Tactically, no, there still wasn't enough time to make the French armies superior like they had been early in his reign in 1805, 1806, 1807. Operationally, he was still uh, better than anything the Allies had. So the Allies had to find something to counter Napoleon's operational superiority. Now, strategically, neither side really changed their objectives very much. I mean, Napoleon's objective was to destroy the coalition. The coalition's objective was to drive Napoleon out of Germany. Now, as far as Napoleon's operations, to achieve that strategy, he had chased the Allied army to that border between Silesia and Poland. And he believed that when the war resumed, that that's where the Allied army would be. And so he decided, he made his operational plans to destroy that Allied army there while he massed the Austrian army that he believed would be forming around Prague and another Allied army that he believed would be forming around Berlin. So that's what the armistice allowed him to do. The armistice gave him about 400,000 additional men so that he could mask multiple enemy armies while he concentrated on the main enemy army, which he believed was the enemy army that he would find in Silesia. Now, as it turned out, the Allies, they kind of changed things around. And instead of the main Allied army being in Silesia, the main Allied army became the Allied army forming around Prague and consisting mainly of Austrians. So Napoleon's going to have a little bit of difficulty when the campaign starts trying to identify the main Allied army. It was always his doctrine to destroy the main Allied army. He felt that you kill the head, the body will die. So the opening weeks of the armistice, he was actually confused. He didn't know where the main Allied army was. So he's going to spend the rest of the campaign trying to find and destroy the main Allied army. And that brings us to the Allied operational plan. The Allied operational plan was actually a combination of an Austrian plan that the Austrians had formulated in the town of Reichenbach and a Prussian and Austrian plan, which the Prussians and Austrians had formulated at a place called Trachenberg. You usually just see it referred to as the Trachenberg plan, but really, if between the two, there's more of the Reichenbach plan than the Trachenberg plan in it. The Trachenberg plan called for a more of a direct attack on Napoleon, on his lines of communication going back to France, more of an offensive-oriented plan, where the Reichenbach plan said, no, we need to work on a strategy of attrition, wear Napoleon down. So what that called for was that no Allied army should fight Napoleon. Once an Allied army realized that Napoleon was in front of them, it should retreat. Now, altogether, there were going to be three Allied armies when the campaign resumed. So when one of the three found that they were facing Napoleon, it would retreat while the other two would close in on Napoleon's flanks and lines of operation and communication. Once Napoleon turned against one of them, then that one would retreat and the other two would pursue. So the goal was to avoid fighting Napoleon because of his superior operational abilities and to wear the French down through marches and countermarches. And the plan worked. The plan worked well, went against the principles of having a decisive battle. But Napoleon actually got tired of marching back and forth in August and September and finally just said, here I am. I'm in Leipzig. The Saxon city of Leipzig comes around me and let's have a battle. And kind of throughout that fall campaign, one battle that kind of stood out was Dresden. Do you think that was one of Napoleon's kind of last great victories of his career? That was his last great victory. It's funny. The Austrians were the main proponents of the Reichenbach plan. And the main feature of the Reichenbach plan was not to fight Napoleon himself. So Napoleon, when the war resumed in mid-August, Napoleon was actually in eastern Silesia trying to find that main Allied army that he thought would be there. So in accordance with the Reichenbach plan, the Allied army at Prague, which was called the Army of Bohemia, started advancing toward Napoleon's base at Dresden. And the Allied army 
at Berlin called the Army of North Germany that started also started advancing against Napoleon's position in Saxony. Well, the Allies made it, the Bohemian Army made it all the way to Dresden, and Napoleon miraculously was able to get back to Dresden in time with reinforcements. Well, the Allies still outnumbered him about 200,000 to 110, 120,000 men. Now, according to the Reichenbach plan, the Army of Bohemia should have retreated. But the King of Prussia and the Tsar of Russia wanted to fight, so they overruled the Austrians and they, just, they had the two-day Battle of Dresden in which Napoleon mauled the Austrian army, almost enve- double-enveloped it, destroyed two of its corps because of his superior operational abilities and being able to get men to the battlefield when he needed them. And so the Austrians said, see, we told you so. We had no business fighting here, and this is what happened. We should have gone with the Reichenbach plan and retreated. So Dresden was Napoleon's last great victory. But once again, it wasn't on par with the victories of his early career, because although he mauled the Austrians, the army of Bohemia was able to march away. Um, It was a huge army to begin with, 250,000 men. Um, To destroy that in one or two days of battle is, is very much a tall task. And the Allies had adopted the Napoleonic organization of using uh, army corps system. So it made it even doubly harder to destroy an army in a single day or two day battle, because if an army consists of five or six army corps, you destroy two of the corps, that means that there's still three or four left. The army itself isn't destroyed, just two or one or two of its corps, and the army's able to march away. And that's what happened to Napoleon once again, just like in the spring campaign. Although he won a, a victory, it wasn't decisive, and the army of Bohemia was able to cross the mountains back into Bohemia and hide in the mountains and not uh, be devastated by Napoleon's pursuit. And you mentioned Leipzig earlier, which was sort of the culmination of this campaign. Do you think Napoleon miscalculated his ability to win a decisive battle against so many different armies being out heavily outnumbered? I mean, how does I think the Battle of Leipzig. Well, I don't think he miscalculated at Leipzig. I think the mistake he made was he should have flipped the theater of war. The spring and, and fall campaigns of 1813 mainly took place in the German state of Saxony. Napoleon's main base was the capital of Saxony at Dresden. What he should have done in October of 1813 was he should have just moved into North Germany flip the theater, leave the allies in Saxony, which was barren of any food, any supplies, and let them starve there. And he should have defended the line of the Elba River. He actually had established or made preliminary plans to do this by rerouting his communications through North Germany. But at the last minute, the general came out on him and he said, look, let's just fight a battle. Now, what happened between August and October was that Napoleon marched back and forth between Bohemia and Silesia, trying to destroy either the Army of Bohemia, which was the main Allied army, as I mentioned, and the Allied Army of Silesia, which was a a secondary army, but nonetheless, it was consisted of Prussians and Russians. And if Napoleon had been able to destroy that, that would have made a big impact on the coalition. So for two months, he basically ran back and forth between Bohemia, Saxony, and Silesia trying to wage a defensive battle. And each time he approached, the Allies put into play the Reichenbach plan and they withdrew from him. Meanwhile, Napoleon had secondary armies, one that he called the Army of Berlin, which he had hoped to take the capital of Prussia, Berlin, and one called the Army of the Bobber, which was in Silesia, the Bobber being a river, B-O-B-R. And the Army of Berlin was defeated twice by the Army of North Germany. And the army of the Bobber was defeated by the Allied army of Silesia. So while the Allies withdrawing before Napoleon, not fighting Napoleon, they were basically annihilating his secondary armies commanded by his marshals. So even though Napoleon won at Dresden, within a matter of a couple of days, he actually lost three battles where his subordinate armies were secondary armies were defeated by one of the three main Allied armies. Getting back to Leipzig. After chasing the Allies fruitlessly for two months, he decided to basically hunker down in Leipzig and invite the Allies to surround him. By this time, there was actually a fourth Allied army, the Army of Poland, Russian army, 
which had arrived. So now he was faced by four allied armies, but he finally welcomed the ability to fight a battle. And he had a great plan for the battle. If things had worked out the way he had planned them, the battle went over on the 16th with the army of Bohemia, the main allied army being crushed. But because the allies just had such a tremendous advantage in manpower over him, he was not able to implement that plan. And so the battle became a long, drawn-out, four-day battle of attrition in which Allied superior numbers finally wore him down. But to sum up the question you asked, I think what he should have done was he should have flipped the theater of war, moved his army, which was still in good shape in October of 1813, to North Germany, where he would have been able to unite with one of his best marshals, Marshal Davout. He would have had the resources of North Germany at his disposal. And the concern was, well, if the French move into North Germany, that just opens the road to France through South Germany. But there was no way that the Allies were going to march toward France, leaving Napoleon in their rear. So what he couldn't have done in North Germany is he could have played the waiting game, just like the Allies are doing with him, to see who starved first. Because now he would have all the resources and they would be stuck in the middle of Saxony starving. But that's not how Napoleon did things. Like he could have avoided invading Russia the year before. He could have simply marched and taken Ukraine and Belarus and added them to Poland and told the Poles, look, I'm going to stay here for six months. You've got six months to raise an army. And after six months, I'm going back to Paris. So when the Russians come, it's up to you to hold them long enough until I can come back. But that wasn't Napoleon. Napoleon became the man that he was by meeting the enemy army, the main enemy army head on and defeating it. So those type of ideas didn't enter his head. He wanted to defeat the main enemy army as quickly as possible. And just to ask some concluding questions about the campaign. Overall, what do you think the military and historical significance is? Well, military and historical significance is really captured well by the German general staff at the turn of the century in their nine-volume study of the 1813, 14, and 15 campaigns. It basically is the introduction of modern warfare, the crowning of the operational level of war as the most important of the three levels of war. You look at the U.S. Civil War, every U.S. and Confederate general was well-versed in the Napoleonic Wars. Stonewall Jackson carried a copy of Napoleon's Principles of War in his knapsack. And so it was really the beginning of modern warfare. And the principles of operational warfare that Napoleon perfected are still used today, even though we have so many different domains of warfare and platforms of warfare. It's very simple. If you can mask one enemy and isolate the other and outnumber a third, you're going to end up winning one battle after battle. So the principles are still the same, although technology has changed. But really, I look at 1813, 14, and 15 as, as the beginning of real modern warfare where you have multiple armies operating on multiple fronts in multiple theaters. And where do you think Napoleon's German campaign in 1813 ranks with his other military campaigns? Do you think it was kind of tactical <laughs> brilliance, but he just had too many enemies? Where's your perspective on that? Well, it's hard to judge because, like I just mentioned, you have, for the first time, multiple armies operating on multiple fronts in multiple theaters. And the one thing about the French command structure was that it wasn't like our structure of command here in the United States, where there's a big emphasis on officer preparation and officer training. French generals were trained to be great tacticians. The operational and strategic levels of war, those were up to Napoleon. I mean, he, strategy and operations, those were his domains. So here you have independent armies operating under French marshals who've never been trained really to command armies. They don't understand Napoleon's operational approach to warfare. Probably if Napoleon had been able to clone himself somehow, the 1813 campaign would have turned out very differently. So you have two things going against Napoleon in 1813. Number one, he's got these secondary armies commanded by marshals who are not really prepared for independent command. And number two, you've got this allied strategy where the allies are going to retreat rather than fight Napoleon himself, but attack these secondary armies. So they're evading his strength, which is him, and they're attacking his weakness, 
which is his secondary armies and under these commanders who really have no business having independent command. So Napoleon still had the mastery of operational warfare. I mean, he came within a day of destroying the army of Silesia and the army of, of North Germany, just north of Leipzig on October 10th. He almost destroyed the army of Bohemia at Dresden. But the Allies, for some reason, this was their sixth time, sixth coalition. But for some reason, they were able to stay a step ahead of him most of the time. I guess that's what happens when you get your butt whipped five times before that and five coalition wars before that. Maybe you finally start to understand your enemy. Um, but like I said, it's, it's hard to place the blame completely on Napoleon, other than the fact that you blame him because. He put resources, army, whole armies under the command of subordinates who were not prepared to lead armies in campaigns. Some of these marshals that I'm talking about, Marshal Udino was the commander of the army of Berlin. After he was defeated at Gross Baron outside the gates of Berlin, he was replaced by Marshal Ney. The army of the Bobber was commanded by Marshal MacDonald. That army basically disintegrated in the month of September. So what happens is Napoleon loses resources. He loses tens of thousands of men because his subordinates aren't capable of commanding entire armies in a war. So who do you blame? You blame Napoleon? When he was told about all these defeats, he took it in stride. When he was told that Marshal Ney had been defeated south of Berlin at a place called Denovitz in early September, his response was, one day I'm going to write a book that's going to explain to my generals how to lead armies. I'm going to explain it so clearly that anyone can do it. So he recognized that there was this inherent shortcoming built into his military system. But what can you do? You can't clone yourself. You can't be everywhere at once. So this was part of the political aspect of being emperor. You can't suffer a rival when you're emperor. So Napoleon even when one of his marshals did good, Napoleon always took the credit first, okay? So if you were to read a newspaper, you would first read about how Napoleon won the battle. And then there would be another article talking about the role of, say, Marshal Davout at Auerstedt in 1806. Marshal Davout won the battle, but for propaganda reasons, the emperor has to get all the credit. So there was always this political aspect to Napoleon that you can't let one of your subordinates become as powerful as you and perhaps pose a challenge to you. The history of Rome was always on everybody's mind, going all the way back to the French Revolution. Everybody remembered the history of Rome. And so Napoleon, I wouldn't say feared, but he made a conscious decision to make sure that his marshals remained loyal to him and that the public knew that all credit belonged to him. So part of the system, military system, part of the political system, but be that as it may, he lost. He was defeated for whatever reasons, whether he failed to train his marshals, whether his strategy in 1813 was good or bad, he lost. And my final question is just overall, what do you think the legacy of this campaign is? Biggest legacy is that it propelled Prussia to the forefront of being the leader for German unity. The Prussians, like I said, Prussia was occupied. Napoleon had defeated the, destroyed the Prussian army in 1806 and occupied Prussia since then. He forced the Treaty of Tilsit on the Prussians in July of 1807, and Prussia was forced to cede half of its territory and half of its population to Napoleon's allies and then remained militarily occupied until the Russians came in 1813. So. The Prussians, they fought what is called a, a Freiungskrieg, a war of liberation. And this idea spread throughout Germany. And even the states that were Napoleon's allies in 1813, they kind of took up this idea of being liberated from the French. So even though their kings were Napoleon's closest allies, the common people took up this idea of liberating from the French, being liberated from the French. So all of Germany began to look at Prussia as the leader when it came to German unification. And obviously, a little over 50 years later, Germany would be unified under Prussian leadership, where the king of Prussia became the emperor or kaiser of Germany. And the Second Reich was established in 1871. So to me, that was the biggest political repercussion. 
The biggest military repercussion is that the campaign of 1813 really solidified the Napoleonic way of war, which would last, unfortunately, all the way up to World War I, where tightly packed masses would charge headfirst into enemy positions. And of course, the big difference between 1813 and 1914 was the weapons had changed so much. Unfortunately, tactics did not until during the war, the generals realized that suicide, they were asking their soldiers to commit suicide by practicing these Napoleonic tactics. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I hope you kind of got some perspective on the German campaign of 1813, as it's known, or from the German or Prussian perspective, the German War of Liberation. Again, I've always been interested kind of in Leipzig, for example, because again, it was this the largest land battle in world history up until, again, the First World War. But I think my hot take about Napoleon is throughout this campaign, he showed that brilliant tactical or that tactical brilliance that pretty much allowed him to conquer most of Europe. But I don't think he was all that great of a strategist, meaning he was always looking towards the next battle. He was always looking towards destroying the Allied army, but there were three armies. And he didn't necessarily need luck to win those battles, but the Allies, Russia, Sweden, Great Britain, Russia, they had been fighting him for so long that they almost knew how to read Napoleon. They knew his tactics, they knew what he was going to do, and they were able to build a strategy around that. And you saw throughout the German campaign of 1813 how more or less successful that was, that they were able to eventually box Napoleon in at Leipzig and then just use sheer overwhelming force to overcome Napoleon's tactical brilliance. And I think Leipzig's the perfect example because Napoleon always loved the initiative. He always liked keeping his opponent off balance. Whereas at Leipzig, it was almost impossible for Napoleon to ever gain the initiative because he was fighting three different armies that pretty much almost outnumbered him three to two, I believe, had most points during the battle. And that just makes it impossible to overcome that. And again, from the strategic perspective, Napoleon was the emperor. He was the sole ruler. He dominated the military, political, economic parts of France. And and he didn't really take advice from advisors. And he had trusted confidants, but he didn't really have diplomats that really had his ear. And he was always sort of looking to solve things through a military perspective when, in some cases, he should have probably done it through diplomatic perspective. By the end of 1807, he had defeated Russia, Austria, and Prussia and pretty much dominated the greater European continent and probably could have for years to come. Although, again, Great Britain was on an island and could sort of operate on its own. His kind of obsession with beating them led him led to the invasion of Spain, which would become what some scholars have described as uh, Napoleon's Vietnam, meaning it was a constant drain on his resources. And we certainly could have used the extra manpower in the German campaign of 1813. And again, it was nowhere to be found because either it was gone or sacrificed in Russia or it was tied down in Spain. So Again, I covered a wide variety of topics, but again, I think the German campaign of 1813 was really the culmination of years and years and years of the Allies really studying Napoleon, mimicking Napoleon, and eventually beating Napoleon. And there's this interesting argument that kind of continues to go on till this day about whether Leipzig or Waterloo was more decisive in terms of bringing Napoleon to an end. If you remember, after 1813, or after the Battle of Leipzig, the Allies then went on to invade France. Napoleon abdicated the throne and was sent off, I think it was to the, I forget what island it was, but he was abdicated. And then he returned, and then there was the Hundred Days campaign where he lost the Battle of Waterloo and then was exiled again. And it's hard to argue, you know, for example, Dr. Mikabertzi, who we interviewed about our Napoleonic War episode, argues that Leipzig was way more decisive because Napoleon was never able to raise an army of hundreds of thousands like he was able to during the German campaign of 1813. Whereas you go to maybe some British scholarship, they'll argue for, in fact, that the British army under the Duke of Wellington and the Prussians at Waterloo put the final nail in the coffin of Napoleon. And again, Napoleon was exiled 
to the point where he would never be a threat to Europe again. So there again, I think looking at those perspectives, whether that's from German or Russian or Prussian scholars or things like that, again, people argue to this day, and I think they're all very valid. I think people bring a wide variety of arguments and perspectives to it. And that's definitely something I would encourage is you definitely want to get perspective. People from different nationalities, there's this weird sort of, I think when it comes to military history, there is this sort of nationalism that your country that maybe participated in conflict did most of the work or had that decisive maneuver that won a battle. And that's all important. But I think, again, the Napoleonic Wars, because it involved most of Europe, has such a wide range of perspectives on the war. And as Dr. Ligier kind of explained, some of those were lost, unfortunately. Again, the German archives were some of the best in the world, really. And unfortunately, they were destroyed during the Second World War, which I always think is tragic that because of the destruction, because of the bombing, all that, we might not get all of the scholarship or all the sources that one would like. But again, I think it's an interesting examination. It's an interesting case study of, in my mind, that tactical brilliance on the battlefield can only carry you so far. Again, this isn't to take anything from Napoleon. Again, I think he was a brilliant tactician and there's a reason he won so many battles, but there's also a reason why he lost in the end. I don't know his exact record, but if you look at all the battles that Napoleon lost, they were pretty decisive in the sense that if you look at Leipzig, if you look at Waterloo, how it ultimately turned out was that it ended up with him abdicating from his throne. And despite winning all those previous victories, they ended up ending the same. So just that is my two cents on Napoleon and again, the German campaign of 1813. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hope you enjoyed the interview and hope you gained some more perspective on an interesting time in European history. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again. 